Hey, bitch talkers. We are doing a real quick intro here because we have a lot of content to bring your asses. We're starting off Sundance this week. And for the next two weeks, you'll be hearing us with tons of different filmmakers and very different films uh, three times each week. And we have our friend John Wildman from Films Gone Wild with us. So if you're hearing a male voice and you're like, who is that? It's John Wildman. And today we are starting off with a bang. We have two female filmmakers that are both returning guests. Uh, we have Fire of Love with director Sarah Dosa and TikTok Boom with director Shalini Kantaya. And these are two completely different documentaries about uh, two completely different paths in life. So we hope you enjoy these interviews. Welcome to Bitch Talk, booze interviews straight from the heart of San Francisco. I'm Erin. That's Ange. Hi. That's Char. Hello. You can find us at bitchtalkpodcast.com where you can sign up for our monthly e-news. For behind the scenes videos and two minute clips of our interviews, head to our YouTube channel and subscribe. You can find us every other Thursday morning at 9.30 a.m. at bff.fm. And if you like what you hear... Rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the love of God, do it. It really helps. Here we are virtually at Sundance 2022. My name is John Wildman. I'm the editor-in-chief of FilmsGoneWild.com. Here with the Bitch Talk podcast team of Aaron Lim and Angela Tabora. And on this segment, we're going to talk about the documentary, Fire of Love, We've got with us Sarah Dosa. She's the director of the film. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. All right, Sarah. So you start us off. People haven't seen the film yet. They're listening to this interview, watching this interview. Tell us what Fire of Love is about. Um, Fire of Love is an unexpected love story between a married pair of volcanologists, Katya and Maurice Kraft, and their third love, Volcanoes. <laughs> so the film kind of charts their, their story over the course of time. Um, they met in the late 60s as students of geology in France. Um, they were actually born just 20 kilometers apart. Um, and then they, they fell in love with kind of the thrill of the fire, so to speak, and ended up picking up cameras and running around the world, getting as, as close to volcanoes as possible. Um, not just because of the thrill of risk, but also this uh, attempt to deeply understand um, volcanoes and how the earth moves. Um, and tragically, their lives are, are taken in the end. But um, uh, in their death, uh, we like to think that that kind of, kind of pulls into focus what it really means to live a meaningful life. So that's, that's kind of the, the core, the, the beating heart of our film is, is about living with passion and, and meaning. Um, so yeah, that's, that's in a nutshell, fire of love. Sarah, um, I love the kitschiness feel and look to this film, which includes the music too. Can you talk about the choices? Yeah, we, we had a lot of fun with that. Um, Maurice and Katya, uh, they left behind this profound legacy uh, footage, um, about 200 hours or so of 16 millimeter footage. They also were celebrities in um, the 70s and 80s and, um, and just before their death in 1991. And so there is a ton of uh, interviews and archival material of them too. And um, as we watched the footage that they shot as well as footage shot of them, we really kind of got a sense of their own characters, um, their own uh, personalities. They're, they're super playful people. Um, <laughs> 
they banter with each other and, and I feel like their personalities really come across. And that was kind of an initial guide, uh, as was kind of some aesthetics from French New Wave, which formed the cultural landscape um, when Maurice and Katia were coming of age in the late 60s and early 70s in France. And you see that show up in their own work. Um, for example, their cinematography had a lot of like fun zooms and pans and uh there's a lot of levity and humor in just like the imagery itself that they recorded the way that they write. Um, so they authored 19 books and a lot of them had a diaristic first person uh, voice to them. And it kind of reminded me of some of the bombastic uh, narration of a Godard or, or Agnes Varda or Truffaut film. And so um, it was that kind of playfulness or kitschiness that we thought would really kind of fit their spirit as well as the time period. Um, and since there were a lot of gaps in, in the archive. Um, there was a lot of holes in the story, things that we couldn't confirm or conflicting stories. We realized we needed some sort of interpretive framework to, to make the story come together. And so uh, uh, we kind of leaned into music to help us uh, you know, convey some emotions. Um, we worked with a fantastic animator named Lucy Munger, who um, kind of lent us that, that paper cutout feel that, that kind of stitches together some of the film too. Um, as well as we we wrote narration that was voiced by one of my artistic heroes, <laughs> Miranda July um, uh, also. And, and I think we wanted all of that to kind of feel um, like distinct elements, but also forming this kind of collage uh, that um, is kind of the ultimate form of the film. I do love that. Um, you are, are explaining to us in audience how volcanoes work. And I, I love that you did it simple, simplistically enough for me to understand who was never good at science. always loved it, but never good at it. So I'm curious, uh, how, how much, how many scientists did you have to work with? How much science did you already know? Um, and, and are you more so interested in it now after having worked in this film? Yeah. Oh, those are great questions. Um, luckily, Maurice and Katya were excellent at communicating um, the science of volcanoes quite simply themselves. They they authored a number of publications that are replete with like very technical language, which were very hard for us to absorb. Um, but, um, but their own writing actually makes um, volcanoes seem almost, I mean, it does make them seem Approachable, and it literally was from recent Katia, of course. So they, they were wonderful teachers. Um, we also had the pleasure of um, of two science advisors. Uh, the first one was Clive Oppenheimer, who's a celebrated volcanologist. Um, he actually appears in three Werner Herzog films. Um, and consulted quite early um, on in, in the whole process. Uh, it was actually one of the inspirations behind the, knowing the film in the first place. And a, another professor, Rebecca Williams, um, also kind of gave us some, some fantastic insight and helped us make sure that we were scientifically sound. Um, but for me personally, yeah, it absolutely got me even more curious about science. Um, I've always felt a deep connection with the natural world and I'm endlessly fascinated by how humans uh, make sense of, of this relationship. Um, and um, but scientific languages wasn't something that came to me naturally, so to speak. But this this project really kind of allowed a different avenue into that. Um, uh, it felt, you know, scientific, but also Maurice and Katia were, were quite poetic and philosophical. Um, and so I, I think um, that that's one of the things that I, I gravitated most to. And, and I feel like kind of as someone who isn't as scientifically inclined, that that helps give me an entry point that I could connect with in perhaps a, a human way. You know, the uh, the documentary landscape is so broadened now. 
Um, you know, the, you know the, the, the idea of, you know, documentaries being broccoli movies that are, you know, important for us to watch as opposed to a popcorn <laughs> movie that's entertaining, you know, and, we, and we've had debates in recent years with like my octopus teacher, you know, and, and what was staged, what was not. And, uh, you know, Robert Greene's work where it's like, you know, it is staged and, and, and kind of thing. Uh, and you've got, you know, uh, there's such a solid track record within, you know, documentary. I would love for you to talk about because, again, this is yet another documentary that takes a real artistic approach where it could have been, it could have been fucking academic, um, <laughs> but it's not. And so I would love for you to, to talk about that. Yeah, it was, again, very much guided by Maurice and Katya themselves and trying to listen to, to what they left behind Um as a way to, to, to really understand the story. They were so playful. They were so uh, full of life. And it was so important for them, for others to understand volcanoes. Um, that, that, that was something that we were really led by. Um, but since they did so in such a humorous way, it was important for us to do the same. Um, and I'm really inspired in the documentary landscape in general of the filmmakers who are doing that. I don't think they're dumbing anything down by not using academic languages. I feel like they're doing expansive and, and creative things to open people into conversations, which is really important. Um, so it doesn't feel like a more exclusive, um, uh, discriminatory or, um, you know, ivory tower type of, of field, which I think historically it's sometimes documentary has gotten a bad name for. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly a hope that our film is kind of in that latter camp of, of trying to open up space for, for conversation and play with the form in a way that also doesn't feel too academic, but you still learn something about our world. Some of that footage is unbelievable. Did you all have that same feeling when you're watching it? Like, this isn't real, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I first want to definitely shout out my extraordinary editors, Aaron Casper and Jocelyn Shapu, who were just an absolute joy to work with. That's part of why also just to get into to, to back to your question about kitschiness and, and kind of the sense of play in the film, like they're just so fun. And we had such a fun time working on that. I, I really hope you can feel that kind of the joy that we had in the process in the film itself. Um, but yeah, we all were like delighted and in awe and baffled by what we were looking at every day. Um, um, there were some things, for example, a, a shot that comes in um, about, a, uh, about a third of the way through the film where Katya is in her illuminized suit and gets super close to um, this crater in Iceland, um, it's the Krakla volcano. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's jaw dropping. Like I've seen it a billion times and every time I'm still like, like, God, you look out, <laughs> there's lava splatting next to you. Like, I still can't believe she did that. And so unflappable, um, right in there with her thermometer, checking the temperature. <laughs> um, but other things too, were such surprises. For example, like one of my favorite moments is when Maurice goes in, into these caves in the Canary Islands. Um, and he's like literally in the belly of the earth. And there's this albino um, crab uh, that uh, kind of, you do just see for a second, but I love that, um, the way that their minds worked, uh, they would not just kind of photograph the, the volcanic landscapes, but then they would let the camera linger on this little crab. Um, it says so much to me about how they saw the world and ecological relationships, um, and also kind of their their um, their eyes um, as as filmic storytellers. So those were so fun to see and, and really delighted us to, to stumble across as we were looking through all the footage. 
Yeah, it is. It's so fun to watch them interact and and their love story. The three of them with the volcano it just it rings it rings through so vividly. Um, but another theme that I thought was really interesting and important was how they didn't really care to be around people. Uh, you know, you talk about they joined an anti-war protest uh, back in the late 60s, but I, I'm going to read you say um, human pursuits of power felt vain and absurd next to the power of the earth. Um, so I, I'd love for you to expand on that and discuss this theme and, and how, you know, 30 years after their death is still relevant. Hmm. Oh, um, I'm so glad you asked that question. That That's one of my, um, the, the themes of the film that uh, I've been excited about and drawn to and also perplexed by the, the most. Um, but for, for Katya and Maurice, they were born, um, uh, Katya was born during World War II, and Maurice was born just after World War II, um, right on the French-German border. And they saw their uh, hometown, the world around them, ravaged by human violence, um, which did, once they started to learn about geology, uh, that felt, um, it did, in their words, it felt uh, vain and petty compared to kind of this awesome force of the planet. Um, uh, being amid volcanoes taught them about kind of just the precarity and smallness of, of human life. And it's like being so close to that um, feeling allowed them to think like, <laughs> there's such fragility here. Why, why would you ever lose it? Uh, why would you ever enter into these struggles? Um, and, um, but particularly to, to your, your question, Angela, um, and, and, uh, the late 60s, they were so disillusioned what, in terms of what was happening during the Vietnam War. Um, and and uh, growing up in France, the history of colonialism there was something that was deeply heartbreaking and, and disillusioning to them. Um, but they decided rather to kind of engage in uh, the kind of a politics of resistance against the Vietnam War. Um, their mode of uh, responding was to, to go kind of pursue wonderment and escape in the, in the natural world. Um, but as their story goes on, they couldn't escape for long because ultimately they are human and we are all bound up in, in this complex um, in, of you know, global capitalism and colonialism that absolutely structures our globe um, um, or relationships around the globe. Um, and so that was something that they really grappled with was um, trying to find a way to, to work with the human world, so to speak, in a way that could kind of, um, I don't want to necessarily say save humans, but act as like, like mediators between the natural world that, um, you know, volcanoes that were taking human lives, but also governments that were not, uh, uh, not listening to scientists who are saying, um, look, there's an eruption about to happen. Um, like, are you going to act? Are you going to put money into warning systems? Are you going to evacuate? And um, I'm specifically talking about the, the Columbia eruption in 1985, um, and the government decided not to act because it's deemed too costly. Um, and so um, they realized how important it was to use kind of their training to become um, a kind of mediator, uh, to advocate for governments to, to listen um, in moments like that. So um, that allowed kind of for a moment of reflection of turning back towards the human world. And, and it's kind of one of my greatest hopes for the film that um, the audience comes away realizing there's actually not a division. There's no human world. There's no nature world. We're all one interconnected world. And it's actually, it's that 
um, manufactured and in my mind, violent split um, that has gone through the process of, of colonialism um, that that uh, makes this false separation and is responsible for so many things that I could go on and on and on about, <laughs> but I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> but all to say, yeah, it's it's um, yeah, it's it's a storyline and a theme that is uh, an important one to me in the film. Uh, before we go, um, we do have to um, uh, talk about Miranda July because we just have to. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, you know, she she's such a distinctive um, uh, uh, entity in independent film and uh, and art in general, um, that, 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 uh, I, I'm really interested in how it was working with her as a director, because she seemed to just absorb projects that she's involved in and, you know, and, 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 and immerse herself rather than just be like, you know, a paid for hire, uh, you know, kind, you know, kind of a person mm -hmm. talk about her for a moment. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautifully said. Um, Miranda's just incredible. Um, she's really been one of my favorite artists. Uh, since I first saw me and everyone we know, and, and I saw it in 2006. Um, she has a remarkable capacity to express like such strength and vulnerability, such curiosity, um, such a kind of like a poignant intimacy in, in all of her work. Um, but she, she does, she like absorb, she really, um, she, she, I feel like she was like channeling Maurice and Katya and volcanoes all at once, along with her own curiosity as our narrator. Um, she really inhabited that role um, in such a beautiful, rich way. Uh, I'm so I'm profoundly grateful to work with her. Um, and for me, as, as a I, I make nonfiction work, I, I've never made a, a fiction film before. I've never worked with actors really. So my first experience, like getting to work with Miranda, was just absolutely breathtaking. It, um, uh, it was stunning to to watch her work and to to see her kind of interpret the the writing that um, we had, and she would add things too. It was just like, oh yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> um, uh, to to the writing itself, aside from of course adding the, her performance. Um, uh, but yeah, I can't imagine a, a more perfect narrator um, who has, yeah, I feel like she's so beautifully elevated. Well, I, I you know, I, I mean, I, I think she is such the, the, the cherry on top to just a wonderful storytelling, um, you know, that you were able to pull off with this. It's really, really, really wonderful. Again, the film is Fire of Love. Uh, we've been talking uh, with the filmmaker, uh, Sarah Dosa, and man, I have to thank you. I have to think that Katya and Maurice would be thrilled to death um, with what you pulled off here. Oh, that is the highest compliment in my highest goal for, for this project. So thank you so much for saying that. And thanks, thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm such a huge fan of your podcast. And yeah, really honored to be here. Here we are at Sundance 22, all virtual recipe style. My name is John Wildman. I'm the editor-in-chief of filmsgonewild.com. And with me uh, are the, the, the two killer interviewers from Bitch Talk Podcast, uh, Aaron Lim and Angela Tabora. So I'm pumping you guys up to start this one. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and this one, we've got a documentary we're going to talk about, TikTok Boom. Uh, and this is one of those fun times where we get to talk to a director for the second time, uh, Shalini Kataya, uh, because we spoke with her a couple of years ago with Coded Bias. And 
Uh, welcome to the show. And we start this off uh, with having, as you know, because you were here before, uh, having our filmmaker introduce our audience to the film because they have not seen it as yet. So tell us about TikTok Boom. Great. Well, thanks for having me. My name is actually Shalini Kintaya, oh, okay. um, but I'm thrilled to be back. Um, and and thanks for talking about my work for for a few years. Um, the this this film follows Gen Z um, influencers on TikTok, and through their personal stories, explores how a social media app best known for uh, teenagers dancing becomes the center of a geopolitical controversy. We've got a lot to talk about with this, this darn movie of yours, Shalanae. Uh, you know, last time we interviewed you, um, it caused me to take Siri off my phone and facial recognition off my phone because you freaked my shit out uh, with that movie. And, and now this time I was telling my wife, I said, I first started watching this movie going, okay, because she's all about the TikTok. I said, now I've got to do TikTok on the red carpets at my, at my film festivals. I totally have to do that. And then halfway through the movie, I said, but I can never be on screen because otherwise the Chinese will know everything about me. So <laughs> thanks for scaring the crap out of me again, Shalini. Uh, so start off with this because, um, and I know Angela wants to jump in uh, uh, quickly, but you go over a lot of information with this film. And, you know, I mean, we start off with uh, the influencers, you know, um, young kids that are like, freaking millionaires because they beatbox or they're, you know, um, they're, they're talking politically or what have you. And then we get into, again, the information sharing and where is it going and what are we doing with that? And then it just keeps going. I'm going, holy crap, I just thought it was TikTok. Holy, there's just so much here. So please talk about how you distilled all of this in a movie that isn't eight hours long. Oh, well, thank you. That's very kind of you. I, this was such a challenging story because TikTok is its own universe and everything is so recent. It's not like there's 12 books about this. It's all just articles over the last few years. And for me, um, I, I think what you can consense in the film is my own exploration of what is this thing and how do people become famous and how what's in this special sauce? And for me, I first used started using TikTok during the pandemic and was astounded by how addictive this um, app is and how much pleasure I got out of it compared to Facebook or Instagram. And I realized how the algorithm knew me was so intimate. And I think that it, with this film, what you can sense is that I don't give you an easy way out. It's not just dystopian, it's utopian too. It's like, wow, this is so crazy. Like an algorithm can know me better than like, you know, a, a, a partner or a best friend or your mother. And 
at the same time, you're like, and that's totally science fiction. <laughs> and so I, I think that that is the world that we're living in. And I hope what the film does is sort of pull the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz and invite us all, um, uh, you know, into the behind the scenes of, of these technologies that we interact with every day. Yes, very much like John, I'm also scared. Um, I, you know, I'm ready to throw my phone into the river and move to the jungle. Um, but, but it also feels like with all of this information, I don't really think that people are going to get dissuaded, you know? So is it, is it something like, you know, are we going to get left behind if we don't jump on the boat and, and have our finger on the pulse of this? You know, do you think that the, the good outweighs the bad? Basically, I want you to talk me out of moving to the jungle. No, I'm with you on the jungle. I'm less on social media than I was when I started making films about technology, Uh, especially when you realize what's happening to your neurology, what's happening to you neurochemically, like all of these things. But I will say, I just think this is the power of film and being a little bit more literate. And maybe we make, maybe you won't go to the jungle, but you, maybe you'll stay present during one dinner. (laughs) And I think these small, these small choices really, um, really matter. And I think that is the double edge here is that we, we almost can't do without these technologies and they're, as awe-inspiring as they are terrifying. And I think that that that's the moment that we're in. So thank you for Coded Bias. First of all, I think that really opened our eyes back in 2020. Um, but with this film, you shot it in five countries, in 10 cities, in 22 days during a pandemic. What the fuck? <laughs> and how? And how? <laughs> Oh, and congratulations. <laughs> oh, thank you for saying that. I just want to give um, a lot of gratitude to my crew because, and really every crew at Sundown set on every film because we all had to relearn how to make films or, or learn how to make films in a new way during a pandemic and keep each other safe. And I'm so grateful that we all made that commitment to one another um, so that we could make this film. But I think that's true of every film um, that got made this year. So um, I'm grateful to my crew. Um, How did you choose? Because of course there are a number of uh, people that have become, you know, famous tip, and it's tick famous, I, you know, I don't know them, and I, you know, but, you know, TikTok influencers. Um, and, and in fact, you know, again, you know, it was like seeing the wealth and seeing the influence. I was like, I, I was like going, I was, I was trying to place like, you know, because they're making much more money even than YouTube influencers, you know, had at a certain point. And so I'm like, going, you know, are there just a bunch of McMansions in uh, Southern California <laughs> or whatever filled with teenagers, um, you know, that, that, that can edit together dance moves uh, in a certain way or look good in a bikini while they're talking about the, um, you know, genocide and your, uh, you, know, you know, what what the hell? How did you determine which ones you wanted to feature in the film? It, it, it's tricky. And what I, what I do want to say is that 
it's not a laughable amount of celebrity. It's like a seriously legit uh, force to be reckoned with kind of TikTok celebrity. Like when in that last scene, when I'm on the boulevard with Spencer X, I was completely unprepared that if you were under 15 years old and you saw Spencer X, you lost your mind. <laughs> like it, it was like I, kids crying, like I, what you would imagine for like a Brad Pitt or like a George Clooney, like wh who we imagine a Leo DiCaprio, a, a kind of old Hollywood. And it's just amazing to me to see that for TikTok stars. Um, that being said, that's not how I chose the cast. The cast is, uh, you know, huge influencers like Spencer, but then also smaller influencers who are still making an income and um, sort of there are different levels of influencer. But I mean, just someone like me who has no followers, they're, they're all <laughs> mega influencers to me. Well, you really knocked it out of the park with this cast. They were so special and really covered the gamut. I, I specifically loved the dichotomy between Deja and Spencer X's uh, trajectory because Spencer's just like all gung-ho, like follow your dreams, look at me, um, you know, which is true. But Deja was a lot more reflective and critical. I mean, at, at one point she calls her relationship with TikTok sort of an abusive relationship. And I thought that was a really powerful moment in the film. Um, but I'm curious, when working with TikTok stars, you know, we know we know from watching on the streets, they don't use their first take. You know, they take 50 takes and then they'll post the best one. So how was it working with them in a completely different form in documentary? Were they like, can I see how I look? You know, were they a little more critical of just releasing themselves to you freely? What was amazing with Spencer was that I realized that what he does is make TikToks. Like that's his legit job. Like he makes TikToks. And so I, I, I don't think I really realized that if you're a social media influencer, that's what you do. And so I think the, the days that we were with him, he was doing a lot of making TikToks. <laughs> and, and so I think that um, what was great about them I would say, and I agree, I love my cast. Um, I, I, I love my cast. It, it is that they are not just used to being in front of the camera. They're used to being emotionally vulnerable and like real in front of the camera. And so I think that they were all very open to the camera. And, you know, while they were would be completely engrossed in their own craft of making TikToks, they never got involved with the filmmaking process. They were very, um, you know, they were just very respectful and, and in some ways very astute and savvy to our process also. And I think while we talk about TikTok, you also um, use this to talk about Facebook. Can you talk about that storyline and when that was added? Um, yeah, I think it was really important for me to highlight that 
you know, so much of the story of TikTok is the story of all Silicon Valley companies. Like 99.7% of all the problems <laughs> are the exact same problems that Facebook has. And so I, I feel like um, in the film, there are a lot of parallels that I draw, but I also point out that a lot of the enemies of TikTok are people that uh, were intimidated by the competition and sort of bring Mark Zuckerberg in there and how he's tried to derail any kind of competition in this space and how TikTok really gave him a run for his money. Well, and, and rightly so, because he's really kind of scraping by. And, you know, when, when, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, the, the final point that, that I wanted to for you to talk about is um, the scary element. When we talk about information sharing and, um, you know, and, and, you know, and, and what, you know, how much China knows about us um, by this point, uh, you know, the, 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 the aspect about, you know, early on. Uh, military, uh, you know, guys, uh, you know, having no idea that they were basically mapping out, um, you know, our, you know, our, our bases and what have you inadvertently, uh, things like that. Uh, talk about the process, though, as a filmmaker digging into that, because that's when you start getting into, you know, um, you know, that, 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 like the Laura Portress Project X and Glenn Grenwald territory really going, am I going to get thrown in jail because of what I'm, you know, what I'm uncovering and, and, and discovering? Talk about that as a filmmaker, how you approach it and, and what kind of concerns you have as you are approaching it. Well, I think that with that story, it was a very public one because the army banned an app. And I had never heard of the U.S. Army banning a social media app. Um, and the question was that I never got an answer to is really about what's happening with our data. And I feel like that same question could be asked of Facebook. Like, we don't always know. It went to Cambridge Analytica and then, you know, it helps like influence an election, you know, like that all that happened here it became at the heart of national controversy national controversy for a number of reasons um but i i i think that what was interesting to me was the commonality that all information can be weaponized in this particular way uh, there was a story of um, what's the 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 running app that tracks you? I forgot what the name of it mm. is. Um, you know what I'm Which talking. Which one? About. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's one of Strava or one of oh. the one mm. like that. That's like that. And basically, they realized that they too were showing military apps because they were jogging around these areas and and by their tracking devices showing off a lot of assets. And so what is interesting is that we've never had to reckon reckon with this because of the dominance of Silicon Valley what happens when that's based in another country. But I think we're going to see more and more of not just TikTok, but like apps from all over the world. And what does that mean for our data security and the way 
as now, especially that data has become so much of the way that we um, we fight <laughs> um, is is through the cyberspace. Yeah, well, Shalini, so we have, you know, I'm always just so excited to watch your films. I know it's going to be well-researched. I know it's going to be captivating. So we have Coded Bias. Now we have TikTok Boom. Are, are you worried that you're now on some major list and you're being followed because of all the probing and prodding that you're doing? And also, do you, are you thinking of working on something maybe a little lighter next or are you just hitting your stride? Are you just going? Oh, I, I, I'm sure I'm already on a list <laughs> <laughs> or on more than one list. Um, and uh, uh, I, I, I tend to be uh, deviant. And um, we'll, we'll make films about a number of things. Uh, I have no uh, shortage of I ideas that are different from each other. <laughs> well, um, well, we look we look forward to you scaring the crap out of us on the next one. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the, the film is TikTok Boom screening at 2022 uh, Sundance Film Festival. Uh, we've been talking to Shalini Kantaya. It's been great again having you here. Um, and then we're going to turn off our phones as soon as you say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> it was really fun. Thanks so much for having me. If you like what you hear, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about us, you can head to bitchtalkpodcast.com. This podcast is created, hosted, and executive produced by Aaron Lim. My co-host is Angela Tabora, a.k.a. Captain Party. The show's edited by producer Shar. We're powered by GoTo Productions. 